Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, January 30th, 2014. Warning, you're going to need a Bible for this episode of Fighting for the Faith. If you want to get it out now, open up to Galatians chapter 1. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, now I know that uh, on Tuesday, I had my intention was to talk about um, the article about the uh, five lame reasons for leaving a church that Relevant Magazine put out. I will be talking about that on tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Today's episode has been preempted. <clears throat> That's the best way I can put it. We are going to do some groundwork today. Um, in or Well, first hour is groundwork, biblical groundwork, and kind of digging into the proper distinction of long gospel a little bit more deeply in relation to the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Specifically, we're going to be taking a look at the concept of tithing, and then when we're done with all that, as long as it takes, I don't know if it's going to take me less than the first hour or more than the first hour to accomplish uh, the foundation work that we need to do here. Uh, we're going to be reviewing uh, this past Sunday's sermon by Perry Noble, in which Perry Noble literally uh, mangles uh, Malachi chapter 3 and tells the folks over there at New Spring Church uh, that their money is cursed, that they're under a curse if they don't tithe. Uh, yep. <clears throat> Normally, uh, Perry Noble uh, <laughs> leaves that up to Robert Morris to do. Uh, you know, let's just say that I've been very patient waiting for uh, Perry Noble to actually explicitly come out and teach it himself because he teaches on money at least twice a year. And uh, this time around, um, he flat out mangled Malachi chapter 3. But you have to understand uh, the Christian's relationship to uh, the the law and the Mosaic Covenant in order to understand how this particular Bible twist took place. And so what I'm going to be doing along with um, the, uh, the teaching that I'm going to give on the two covenants, I'm going to be reading two different resources 
regarding tithing, okay? One from a Lutheran source and the other from kind of a generic evangelical source so that you can uh, get what the Bible teaches on this and not be schnookered and bamboozled by somebody like Perry Noble, who in the sermon we're going to review here, by the way, is going to make it absolutely clear that he has no problem with the fact that the teaching that he's providing sounds a lot like the prosperity heresy. He has no problem with the fact that that's actually what's going on. So uh, you're going to need a Bible today. So we're going to dig in. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the book of Galatians first and foremost. Um, And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, read to you these two resources. Uh, Again, one from a Lutheran uh, source of uh, Francis Pieper's uh, Christian Dogmatics, Volume 3. There's a section he does in here uh, in, when he's talking about good works. He, he the, the name of the section is called A Word on Tithing. And uh, so he's responding to uh, an argument that was being made that Christians need to tithe all the way back in his day. In fact, the pamphlet that he's discussing was written in 1903. But the, the, the Bible twist is the same, regardless of the years that go by. And then I'm going to be reading from like an, evan, an American evangelical uh, commentary um, on, uh, on the, the question of should Christians tithe and tithing in the church so that you kind of get what's going on here. And both the Lutheran and the evangelical comment, uh, you know, commentators get it right because they rightly distinguish law and gospel. And in this particular case, they correctly distinguish between the fact that Christians are in the new covenant as opposed to the, you know, as opposed to being under the old covenant. You got to keep your covenants straight. So, in, in fact, it's my intention uh, that this episode of Fighting for the Faith will be available as kind of a standalone uh, video blog of sorts. Not exactly true video blog, but I'm going to make it available for people along with the articles so that it all goes together in a unit. So uh, for those of you who subscribe to the podcast, I'll put the uh, articles that I'm uh, reading from together in a PDF that will be uploaded with this episode of Fighting for the Faith so that you have them uh, that you go back to and uh, it, it, and uh, point people to this uh, issue because here's the deal. <clears throat> uh, Perry Noble gives, uh, when he preaches from Malachi chapter 3, he gives no context. He does not properly distinguish the fact that what we're, what we're uh, reading about in Malachi chapter 3 pertains to the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, doesn't make any of those distinctions, and doesn't uh, distinguish the fact that Christians are under the New Covenant, not under the Mosaic Covenant. So as a result of what he preaches here is just literally all Mosaic law, and I have to say it like that, it's all Mosaic Old Covenant to strong-arm people into uh, tithing, which, of course, the reason why they do that because the seeker-driven church model is the most expensive ecclesiastical model known to the history of Christianity. And again, it takes tens and twenties of millions of dollars every year in order to run these uh, seeker-driven megachurches. And they have, you know, and so what they found is in their fundraising tactics, uh, they have got to twist God's word and bind Christians' consciences to the mandatory, obligatory uh, tax that the uh, is uh, the Israelites of old were bound to, uh, and that's the the tithe. But by the way, that's not what Christians are bound to. 
And then, now, that's not to say that Christians are not, in some biblical sense, obligated to support the ministry of God's Word and the preaching of the gospel, um, but that obligation falls <clears throat> very differently than the uh, obligation that uh, Perry Noble gives uh, in the sermon that we're going to be reviewing. So, <clears throat> if you have your Bible, we'll get right to it. Um, we're going to be looking at Galatians, uh, well, start at chapter 1, and I'm going to read a large swath of the book of Galatians, because in doing so, we'll be able to understand the really good rough cut of uh, the Christian's relationship to the Mosaic Covenant. There's a very specific thing we're get, we're, I'm trying to get at here, and uh, we'll, we'll get to it. So, <clears throat> Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and to all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. There's uh, verses 1 and 2. We continue. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now now that Paul has gotten these pleasantries out in the opening of his letter, now comes the meat of his letter. Now keep in mind, historically, what's going on here is that the Apostle Paul is the, the man who went on these missionary journeys, planted these churches in the, in the region of Galatia, and after he left, along came the Judaizers, and they would say things like, oh, you know that Paul. He's not really an apostle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he didn't tell you the whole truth, because um, you, uh, you, you Gentile men over here, there's this little medical procedure called circumcision, uh, that um, if you want to be saved and you really call yourself a Christian, um, then you're, you're obligated to do this. And, and so they would come along and basically say, you're not even saved. You're not really a Christian. And Paul didn't really, uh, he's not really an apostle. And Paul didn't really preach to you the full counsel of God's word because he's not requiring you uh, Gentile men to be circumcised, which is a big no-no because it says so right in scripture. You've got to, you, you men need to be circumcised. And by the way, the Bible does say that men need to be circumcised, but it says that under the Mosaic Covenant, and Christians are not under the Mosaic Covenant. If you mess up your covenants, you're going to wrongly distinguish between law and gospel, and you're going to add into the gospel works, which undermines the entire authority of the gospel itself and changes the message. This is why Paul then, talking about the Judaizers in Galatia, here's what he says to them. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that's contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema, damned is what that word means. Now, as we've said before, so now I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, the the word is anathema, damned. Yeah, that's how strong this is. And if you know church history, uh, then you'll know that uh, when ancient church councils got together to address the topic of heresy— um, when they decided that uh, something didn't square with Scripture and that it was heretical, they would— pronounce anathemas against the doctrine and against the teachers of those uh, doctrines. They would literally damn them. That's how this works. So Paul here in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, damns, he anathematizes the false gospel of the Judaizers. 
Verse 10 then says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now here Paul is giving his credentials. Oh yeah, by the way, what those uh, Judaizers are saying that, you know, that I'm not preaching the, the, the real gospel, this is a lie. This is an absolute lie. Because the gospel I preach is not man's gospel, Paul then says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's right. The, the gospel that the apostle Paul preached, he got it straight from Jesus's mouth. Mm-hmm. Now, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and then I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, this is important because Titus is a Greek-born pagan, uh, former pagan Gentile, now turned Christian, and he hasn't had um, the circumcision procedure done on him. And Paul then says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now notice here. He was saying that there was these brothers who have slept in, slipped in that are trying to bring them in slavery and bondage. Now, this is the important part. Um, Paul says that they didn't, they didn't give in to him even for a second so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Paul saw that those who were trying to mix the Mosaic Covenant with, um, with the gospel were in fact losing the gospel and that you cannot syncretize with them and that for the sake of the truth of the gospel, you can't even yield to them for a second. Now, this is the, kind of an important point. Those people who are teaching the Old Testament tithe are just as guilty as the Judaizers are of mixing uh, two covenants that can't be mixed because they're, you know, they're not saying, oh, you need to be circumcised. They're saying, oh, you need to tithe. 
But James makes it clear that if you want to keep, you know, if you're going to keep one of the commandments, you've got to keep them all. And Paul's going to make this point, too. You don't get to cherry pick the Mosaic Covenant and decide which portions of it you want to abide by. And so uh, the point is this, is that uh, those people who are trying to put us under the Mosaic Covenant's rules regarding tithing, um, yeah, they are, they're, they're in slavery and they don't even know it. And uh, they're in slavery for a particular reason that Paul's going to get to shortly, but I continue. So verse 5 again, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, well, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. That's right. James, Cephas, that would be Peter, they didn't require even Titus, to be circumcised. They added nothing because, well, of course, Paul got his gospel from Jesus Christ himself. So on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, which is the very thing that I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. You can think of it this way. Um, he had no problem enjoying bacon. Okay, you get what I'm saying there? That's what's going on, okay? Uh, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... That's an important point that we'll be making during the sermon review today. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Mm -hmm. So how many people are going to be justified before God by keeping the law? Answer, not one single person. By the way, justified here is, is a word, dikaiao, uh, which basically means to be declared righteous. So no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Paul then continues, but... If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify 
the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no reason or no purpose. That's right. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So then the question comes up, what's the purpose of the law? Well, Paul's going to get to that. So now Paul launches into another chastisement of the Galatians. He says this, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer to the question there is hearing with faith. That's how they receive the Spirit. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? The answer is no. That The answer to that is no. The Spirit does not work miracles among them by works of the law. But it says, or by hearing with faith. The answer is by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, this is another point that I'll be coming back to. Who is under a curse? Everybody who relies on works of the law are under a curse. Now, we're going to hear Perry Noble in hour number two when we get to the sermon review basically try to make the claim that your money's cursed until you tithe. But Scripture here is clear. Anybody who calls themselves a Christian and who's relying on works of the law, they are the ones who are under a curse. Perry Noble doesn't know his covenants correctly, and he doesn't understand where the real curses fall, especially now that we're under the new covenant. Let me read again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. That's right. Why are they under a curse? Because you're cursed um, if you do not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. So Perry Noble, in hour number two, is going to cherry pick a portion of scripture that talks about tithing because it fits what he needs in order to manipulate people and bind their conscience to give money to support New Spring Church. But here's the deal. If he's going to bind them to the law of tithing, he must line, he must also bind them to the law of circumcision. If he's going to bind them to the law of tithing, he must bind them to the, uh, the kosher laws in the uh, Mosaic Covenant. He must bind them to all 613 laws given in the Mosaic Covenant. You don't get to pick and choose, which means that it's required of all of the people of New Spring to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem three times a year. Uh-huh. The Passover, the Feast of Booths, and I think there's another one too. Um, but you get what I'm saying. So let me read that again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, to give a human example, um, even with a human or man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Think of this as like a contract. Once the ink on the paper is, is, is dried, you can't go back and change the terms of the contract. That's what Paul's talking about. So let me read that again. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, think of the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, which came 430 years after Abraham, does not annul a a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? You can say, why then the Torah? Why then the Mosaic Covenant? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law and imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's right. The the Mosaic Covenant was a guardian until Christ came. Mm Mm-hmm. And now that he's appeared, we're no longer under the guardian. That's going to be Paul's argument. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 25 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So what I mean, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, 
but you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. And formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I could even add to this without really adding to the Scripture the same principle. You observe the tithe. Uh huh. Yeah, because that's one of the major portions of the Mosaic Covenant. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel or a messenger of God and as Christ Jesus. So what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Now tell me, you who desire to be under the law— Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are of the free woman. That's right. We're not children of the Mosaic Sinai Covenant. We're children of the promise. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, I can even under the same principle here say this. Look, I tell you that if you accept the tithe, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Same principle. I can say to you that everyone who accepts the tithe, that you are now obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, and you have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait 
for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, that's enough for you to get what's going on here. Paul makes a very clear distinction that we are in Christ and that the Mosaic Covenant cannot justify you before God. And if you want to keep a portion of the Mosaic Covenant, you are actually obligated to keep the whole thing. And when you go down that road, you are under a curse because the Mosaic Law says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to obey everything written in the law. All right. Now, we're going to pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to take a look at two different camps here, a good evangelical commentary as well as Francis Pieper, the Lutheran scholar, see what they say about the tithe because this has everything to do with properly distinguishing between law and gospel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, <sighs> sacked the choir, and put in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? 
You want to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are? Uh, I I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who Our do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay, and okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now. How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser cheapo air cheapo air is a leading provider of airline tickets hotel rooms and rental cars cheapo air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world now whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure cheapo air can help you save money and if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, beware of pastors trying to bind you to the Mosaic Covenant. Scripture says you're under a curse unless you keep all of the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our uh, website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you, you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, now what I'm going to do next is I'm going to read to you first from a a well-known Lutheran theologian dogmatician, Francis Pieper, from uh, uh, from his work entitled Christian Dogmatics. This is from Volume 3. In the section on good works, there's a a section in here called A A Word on Tithing. 
Now, when I'm done with that, I'm going to read for you just from an evangelical commentary. And the name of that commentary is uh, the American, the New American Commentary, Volume 21, on Haggai and the Prophet Malachi by Richard A. Taylor and E. Ray Clendenin. All right, so uh, yeah, so you kind of get the idea. I'm going to basically take a look at. Uh, two good biblical uh, scholars on this issue regarding tithing, especially as it relates to Malachi and how Christians are. What's the Christian's relationship to the Mosaic Covenant? Because people who quote Malachi three, uh, you know, verses seven through eleven, and say, "Oh, see, your money's cursed unless you tithe." Um, they're not making the proper distinction between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. And by doing what they're doing, they are absolutely um, doing the same thing as uh, the Judaizers did. And and they're guilty of, of basically putting people back under the Mosaic Covenant and portion of it. So I'll read Francis Pieper uh, first. Uh, this is a section called A Word on Tithing. Pieper writes... A booklet bearing the title, The Tithe, which was, by the way, was published in 1903, deplores the fact that Christians in wealthy America contribute less than $2 per person annually for missions at home and abroad. Now, these are $2 by 1903 standards. I don't know what the equivalent would be today. but And he says uh, that that book puts the blame for this miserly giving primarily on the theological professors who teach the future pastors, quote, that we laymen and laywomen owe everything in God in general, but nothing in particular, nothing definite, that the time of payment, manner of payment, and even the amount of payment of whatever we owe or think we owe or somebody else tells us we owe is left entirely to our natural disposition, to benevolence, to stinginess, or to our moods and caprices, end quote. And the layman who wrote this preface of the booklet argues with the best of intentions for the introduction of the tithe, meaning, quote, that the tithe is, not was, God's law for the human race, and that the obligation to pay it is as binding now as it ever was, unquote. Now, our answer to this, we Lutheran professors deplore and reprove as sin the undeniable fact that the New Testament Christians make use of their deliverance from the Old Testament tithe to excuse their indolence in contributing for the purposes of the church, particularly for missions. Also, Luther reproved this sin, but we also know that the Christian church never commands where Scripture does not command. The obligation to pay the tithe has been abolished in the New Testament. While the New Testament Scripture inculcates the obligation of generous and untiring giving, it leaves the exact amount and the details of the contributions to Christian insight and freedom. Scripture says, quote, He which soweth sparingly shall also sparingly reap, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, as he has purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-7. through 7. Again, quote, See that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich, and therein I give my advice. 
And that's the 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 10. This general admonition will do the work. In the Old Testament, says Luther, it was prescribed that in addition to the annual tithe due the Levites, the people had to contribute a special tithe, tithe every third year for the poor, the widows, and the orphans, etc. Now, such amounts are not expressly fixed by the specific laws in the New Testament, for it is an era of grace in which everyone is admonished to do this willingly. As Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 6, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. We also know that the reason why in the New Testament the Christians themselves are to determine the amount of their giving, we read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he, a child, as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under a tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. In the New Testament, the Son of God's grace in Christ is shining in full splendor. And it is God's will that Christians be no more children, but full-grown men who, prompted by the willing spirit of sonship, will also, in financial respects, do all and more that was prescribed to the people of the Old Covenant by an an express command. If we then confine, confine ourselves to persuading and urging Christians unto diligent and untiring giving for the gospel by presenting to them the wonderful love of God in Christ, we are not employing impotent generalities, but are urging upon our people the strong divine motives which will always awaken responsive love and fan it into bright flame. The contemplation of the thorn-crowned head of the Savior will produce the right quality and the right quantity of their gifts for the gospel. It is, of course, no legalism when we reprove sloth contributing to the support of the gospel as earnestly as the apostle who addressed these sharp words to his congregations. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. We address these words to the old man of the Christians who must be coerced to outward obedience by the threats of the law. But we expect the good works from Christians according to their new man who, harassed by the flesh, must be strengthened by the divine message of love. Nor do we practice Old Testament legalism when we voluntarily obligate ourselves to pay the tithe or the quint or, according to the advice of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 16, to adopt the method of systematic giving. This advice of the apostle is not a command. Okay, Now, that's from Peeper's work on this, and notice he's making a, a careful distinction between law and gospel and not mixing the two covenants. Now, from the New American Commentary, written by Richard A. Taylor and E. Ray Clendenden, Clendenin, that's quite a name, they have a section in there on in their commentary on Malachi. Um, it, it's called, this is an excursus, if you would, Tithing in the Church. Question mark is the name of the section. So how do these verses apply to Christians today? Talking about Malachi chapter 6. Bring your full tithe in. Test me in these things. All that kind of stuff, right? Uh, So how do these verses apply to the Christian today? That the Old Testament law continues to instruct the church as indicated by the apostles, continued delight in it, and use of it to reveal sin. A a continuity between New Covenant and Old Covenant instructions is shown both explicitly in Romans 13.8 through 10, Galatians 5.14, and implicitly inciting Old Covenant law to confirm instructions under the New Covenant. 
The New Testament writers taught, however, that the believer's relationship to the Old Covenant law is different since the coming of Christ. This is shown, for example, by the instruction Peter received from God to kill and eat and not to call anything impure that God has made clean, see Acts chapter 10, and by the apostolic church's rejection of the proposal that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses, see Acts chapter 15, verse 5. Furthermore, Paul asserted that the Christian is not under the law, but under grace, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and Galatians 5, 18, and 1 Corinthians 9, 20, I'll say that, that he has died to the law and been cleansed from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He declared that the law was added to the promises because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, and that before this faith in Jesus Christ came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." He also declared that Christ has made peace and created a new man of Jew and Gentile by destroying the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. That's Ephesians chapter 2, 14 and 16. Furthermore, the church believed that they were under a new covenant and worshipped on the first rather than the last day of the week. And um, and finally, the author of Hebrews declared that Christ's death on the cross instituted a new priestly order, and that when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He also described the new covenant as superior to the old one and pointed out from Jeremiah that that quote, by calling this covenant new, God had made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. More specifically, the gifts and offerings under the old covenant are are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In this context, we may understand Jesus' teaching as, quote, a new law that at once fulfills and surpasses the law of Moses, a law that Paul would call the law of Christ. So how to reconcile the New Testament teaching on the continuity and discontinuity between New Covenant and Old Covenant instructions has been debated for centuries, and the literature is voluminous. The evidence is clear enough, however, that one cannot simply apply directly to New Covenant believers the laws, directives, warnings, and incentives given to Israel under the Old Covenant. D. Dorsey has argued, for example, that the collection of 613 regulations comprising God's covenant with ancient Israel is not intended to legally govern the church. The Sinaitic law was very specifically designed by God to regulate the lives of the West Semitic inhabitants of southern Levant. Nearly all the regulations of the corpus, over 95%, are so culturally specific, geographically limited, and so forth, that they would be completely inapplicable and, in fact, unfulfillable to Christians living throughout the world today. The diff- and by the way, I would add to here, this is where um, uh, Eusebius makes a great argument in one of his, his books, and he points out the fact that um, the Mosaic Covenant demands, absolutely demands that the men appear before the Lord in the city of Jerusalem three times a year. This is one of those things that, you know, there's no way this could be fulfilled today. But if you're going to put somebody under the Mosaic law, keep in mind, 
Paul says you're under a curse because cursed is everyone that does not continue to do all the things written in the law and continue to do them. So, um, you know, you, you know, you want to you 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 bound by tithing. A mosaic covenant style, well, then you're bound to appear before the Lord three times a year at the time of the Passover, the Feast of Booths, and there's one other time, but I forget it. But you, you get what I'm saying. You're, you're bound to keep all of these things. So the thing is, is that the Mosaic law is unfulfillable by Christians living throughout the world today because it was never intended to, you know, to do that. It was a tutor to keep us, uh, a guardian to hold us until Christ appeared. And now that he's appeared, we're not under it, plain and simple. So uh, they continue, though, the difficulty with trying to apply part of the Old Testament law to Christians is the lack of any biblical substantiation for such a division on the one hand and the biblical teaching regarding the unity of the law on the other hand. Paul in Galatians 5 verse 3, for example, declares to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. God's moral absolutes are eternal because they arise from his own character. But how these absolutes are manifest and administered in the different economies of the Old and New Testament will likely differ. An obvious example is that under the Old Covenant, adultery was not only wrong but was punishable by execution. Under the New Covenant, the absolute prohibition remains, but the penalty apparently does not. Hebrews 13.4 makes it clear that God's going to punish and that this is not a capital crime for humans to you know, prosecute. So what can be learned from the Old Testament prohibition is the seriousness and destructiveness of sin. On the positive side, the Old Testament included instruction to care for the landless, the poor, especially those whose responsibility was to minister in teaching the law and maintaining the temple and its worship. This is matched by the New Testament instructions regarding God's ownership of all that we have and the Christian's responsibility for acts of mercy, kindness, and care for the needy and for respect, love, and care for the church leaders. In response to the Spirit's warning of a coming famine, for example, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. Paul speaks in Romans 15, 26-27 of the obligation of Gentile Christians Christians to meet the needs of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem based on the principle that, quote, they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. The basic principle of caring for the poor is repeatedly taught in the New Testament, and similar to the Old Testament law of the tithe, one's gifts are to be in accordance with his financial resources. Paul's instructions to the Corinthians, as well as others, was that each of you is to set aside something, uh, to set, a, set something aside, and save to the extent that he prospers. Nevertheless, even though in Romans 15 Paul described these collections as spiritual obligations, he spoke of them in 1 Corinthians 16 as gifts. Uh huh. Rendered gifts. Okay. And in the and in the major New Testament passage on giving, Second Corinthians eight two, he described it in terms of generosity, and he praised the Macedonians for giving even beyond their ability. Paul offers a clue in Second Corinthians eight eight that giving under the new covenant follows different principles than under the old covenant. When he says, "I am not commanding you." But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Whereas the law of the tithe was an external obligation commanded of every member of the covenant community of Israel, giving under the new covenant is to be an expression of joy and love produced by God's Spirit and giving evidence of the presence of the one who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes." 
in first Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 8 1, Paul had said that the Macedonians' giving was the result of the grace that God had given them, so that the acceptability of one's offering was determined by it being proportional to one's means and the product of a willing and even cheerful heart. The question remains whether under the new covenant obedience to biblical principles of kindness and generosity carried motivations of material blessings or deprivation as under the old uh, under the old covenant. One must recognize that the assurances of material blessing found in Malachi uh, chapter 3, 7 through 12 are based on the blessings and curses attached to the Mosaic covenant in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Now, this is important because Malachi 3, uh, 3 7 through 12 talks about tithing and talks about the devourer and talks about the curse, right? And removing the curse. The curse that this is referencing, its original referent, is the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, and you can find them in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28. That's what this is referring to. We're not under those curses because we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. But I continue. If the New Covenant has replaced the Mosaic Covenant in some sense, these blessings and curses are no longer in effect, at least not in a direct and literal sense. Yet one must be asked if a similar motivation might be attached to the New Testament guidelines for giving. At first glance, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 2 Corinthians 9 6 through 11 seems to echo Malachi 3 7 through 12. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Closer examination, however, shows that the principles at work here are very different. Paul is not advocating giving that will result in blessing but rather blessing that will result in giving. The purpose of having all that you need, he says, is that you may abound in every good work, not vice versa. The abundance of God's supply of seed and bread that makes rich in every way is for the purpose of being generous on every occasion. What then is the harvest one reaps from the generosity that is sown the harvest of your righteousness? It is... It is not material blessings one may enjoy as the reward for righteousness obedience. The harvest of generosity is rather thanksgiving to God. Paul elaborates in the next two verses. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. The motivation of material blessing in the New Testament, therefore, has a different emphasis from that found in Malachi in the Old Testament. God blesses the Christian for giving, not because of giving. Big difference. And see, that's the point. Christians are blessed by God already because we are 
we are declared righteous. We are free in Christ. We are totally forgiven. And God meets our needs purely by his grace, not by our works. And as God blesses us, we then give. We don't give in order to receive a blessing from God. And those who preach Malachi flip everything upside down and inside out. They're, they, they, they don't get it. It's, it's absolutely ludicrous what they're doing with this, and they, they do not know their Bible. They do not understand the proper distinction of law and gospel, nor do they properly distinguish between the old covenant and the, uh, and the new covenant that we are under. Anyway, so let me read that again. Motivation of material blessing in the New Testament, therefore, has a different emphasis than that found in Malachi in the Old Testament. God blesses the Christian for giving. Right. Exactly. God blesses you so that you can give, not because you give. Also, different is the apparent lack of guidance about the amount to be given. Nowhere in the New Testament, even in these two chapters of 2 Corinthians, dedicated to the issue, is the Christian instructed to give a tithe or a tenth. Since the giving requirement is no longer an external obligation required as dues from every member of the covenant community, but rather it is to be the expression of love from a regenerate regenerated and redeemed heart. The amount is also not specific. How much then should the Christian give? Well, since the New Testament lacks specific instruction on the amount one should give, though on the other hand, continuing the principle of giving as one has prospered according to one's means, and since the giving of a tenth is the pattern used in the Old Testament, even before the founding of the Mosaic Covenant, the use of the tenth should be considered an initial guideline for New Testament giving. There you go. Now, I'm going to make both of these available in one PDF um, I, that, uh, you, that you can download with today's podcast. Um, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, once the podcast is posted, this will be posted as a, as a link to a, a, a web page that you can uh, read along with, too. So it will be available both as a web page and as a PDF for you to consider and read while uh, listening. And so you, you get the idea here. Now, I needed to go through all of this and spend an hour breaking this all down so that we could properly understand what's going on in uh, in this uh, sermon that we're going to be listening to by Perry Noble in hour number two, where he literally puts Christians back under the Mosaic Covenant and you know, turns God into the cosmic mafia, Don. You know, you, you've got to give, otherwise you're... Your money's under a curse, you know. I just, I just have your best in mind for you, you know, things like that. <laughs> of course, I know my accent stinks, but anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break uh, right here. And if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate christian. Quick break when we come back. We'll be reviewing a Perry Noble sermon where he puts everybody back under the Mosaic Covenant and is not teaching the truth about tithing. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. You need to open up your Bible to Malachi chapter 3. Point a few things out here in Malachi also so you can see how bad hermeneutics is in play. Let's do this right. got the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via New Spring Church, Anderson, South Carolina. Perry Noble presiding. The name of the sermon we'll be listening to is called Change. Three questions that have the potential to change everything. And this is going to be the utter confusion of law and gospel and literally Judaizing style, an attempt to bind Christian consciences and put them back under the obligations of the Mosaic Covenant. Yeah, but keep in mind, you want to keep some of the law, you got to keep all of it. Otherwise, you are under a curse. Actually, you're under a curse if you're trying to keep the law because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. All right, let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Perry Noble and three questions that have the potential to change everything. Here we go. Well, howdy, New Spring. Everybody good today? All of our campuses. I want to welcome everybody here. 
watching online. And um, if you're brand new to church or you're, you know, first time back to church in a while, we are in a series right now called Change. And if you're not familiar with what a series is, it's very simple. We take a topic or a Bible passage and we talk about it basically till everybody's tired of it. And then we kind of move on. So we've been talking about change since January 12th. And for those that may have not been here or for those that need a quick review, we probably all need a quick review. Remember week one, I had a Camaro on stage and I talked about how this Camaro has, I mean, it had 800 horsepower. It had more potential than anything that we could ever imagine. It's faster than just about any car we've ever driven, but the Camaro had one problem. Does anybody remember what the problem was? Flat tire. It had a flat tire and no matter how much potential that car had until the flat tire was fixed, it could never reach its potential. So we talked about what is your flat tire? What's the one thing um, in your life that needs to change in order to help us just walk closer um, with Christ? And that was fun. By the way, the owner did bring the Camaro to the office this week. He did let me drive it. I can confirm it will get to over a hundred miles an hour really quick, really quick. All right, so um, then last week, last week we talked about sunscreen. Remember that? We talked about sunscreen. And we said information plus application equals transformation, that we can know about sunscreen, but until we apply sunscreen to ourselves, it's not going to really help us. And we tied that into um, God's word. And it, it's not just information about God's word, but it's consistent application that ultimately leads to transformation in our life. Now, next week, next week is Super Bowl weekend find it very ironic that both of the states in the United States that legalize marijuana have a team playing in the Super Bowl. It's because they're so happy. So um, anyway, that's true. You don't even have to go research that. Um, but but we're going to move for every campus, I, th- I believe except for Florence, we're moving our Sunday night services to Saturday night. That is, um, people sometimes ask, is that a compromise of the gospel? No, there's not a verse in the Bible that says you have to have a Sunday night service. Um, and honestly, who wants to watch the, at least the commercials in the Super Bowl? All right. Yeah. You wouldn't come on Sunday night if we had anyway. So, so we're going to do that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we're doing a message called hashtag for those of you that were, were at the gauntlet. It's the hashtag message that I did at the gauntlet. Um, it's the most commented, um, about message that I think I've ever done at new spring and several of our students and our student leaders have been telling me, you need to do that message. You need to do that message. You need to do that message. So next week we're going to talk about hashtag. It's going to be hashtag good. You need to hashtag show up. You need to hashtag be here because we're going to have some hashtag fun. Um, and this is only for people that's ever struggled with your past or you've really struggled with your identity. It'd be all of us. Okay. So this week though, this week, some of you are like, when you're getting this week, well, this week, let me say this, if you're brand new to New Spring, if this is your first time, your friend's been inviting you um, and, and you finally walked in here and you walked in with one foot on the brake because we're a mega church anyway and you don't really trust us, I get that. I completely understand that. Today's going to be awkward. Really awkward. Do you feel how awkward it just got? On, on every campus, it just got awkward. In fact, somebody's internet just went down. It got so awkward. Today's going to be awkward because I'm talking about money. Feel that? Awkward because, you, and I understand, um, it, it's very suspicious when a mega church pastor talks about money. People used to not care when we talked about money when we were small, but when our church got big, all of a sudden we weren't supposed to talk about it anymore. And so if you're um, suspicious, um, I, I'm okay with that. In fact, let me go ahead and do this. I'm going to give you permission to not agree with anything I say today. You can just listen. And at the end of the, of the service, you can walk out on whatever campus and you go, I don't believe any of that. And that's awesome. And that's fine. But the reason I'm going to talk about it is because money is something 
that all of us thought about this week. Am I correct? Did everybody think about money? Money is something that everybody talked about this week. In, in fact, we talk about money and we don't even notice it. If you ever notice this with women, and it's true with women, it's not true with men, I'm not being stereotypical, I'm just being accurate. You can walk up to a woman today after the service on any campus and go, I love your shirt. And she'll go, Target 20% off. Like, dudes don't do that. I love your shirt. Thanks, man. <laughs> Except the worship leaders. Uh, anyway, I, I'm just... I'm just saying we talk about it. And there's some people here this week, you've worried about it. If you're married, you fought about it. Fought, not thought, fought about it. And so if there's something that we talk about, think about, fight about, and worry about on a consistent basis... And the Bible says something about, should we at least not talk about it in God's house? See, I think, I think we should. Because the Bible has more to say about money than it does heaven, hell, faith, and prayer combined. All of us would consider those four subjects important, right? Heaven, hell, faith, and prayer. But money has more, more verses dedicated to it in the Bible. So once again, once again... If you're skeptical of me, I don't blame you. I'd be skeptical of me too, okay? If you, don't, if you think the church is after your money, here's all I'm going to ask you. For the next 30 minutes or so, give me the benefit of the doubt because I believe if we'll pay attention to God's word, we'll learn some things. Now, for those of you type A people, you got your bulletins open, you got your outlines, we're going to get to those three questions eventually, not initially, okay? So don't freak out. I have not forgot about that, okay? I want to go to the... Um, a book of Malachi. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to go to the book of Malachi. Uh, for those of you that don't know where that is, God put a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible and feel free to go there. Malachi chapter three. Um, if uh, Go to Matthew, hang a left. There's Malachi. He's hanging out with Matthew right there. And I want to visit um, a passage of scripture that if you're from a church background, you're somewhat familiar with, but I want us to look at it today in a different way. Malachi chapter three, verse six says this. I, the Lord... Do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Now, when I read that verse, I was thinking, we live in a world full of change, do we not? Um, Hairstyles change. Clothing preferences change. Musical tastes change. Things change. And I started thinking about some of the changes that I've experienced. For example, the very first video game console I ever got was an Atari. Not an Atari 2600, Atari. Joystick and button. That was it. And I used to play Atari, but then a sound came into my life, and this sound completely changed the way I view video games and life. And it was this sound right here. You remember, y'all remember that? How many of you played Super Mario Brothers at one point? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That's good, guys. That's good, because it makes me want to go play. There's another sound that changed all of our life. You may, you may have a hard time believing this, but at one time in the United States of America, when people wanted to communicate with somebody else, they would actually take a pen and a piece of paper and write this thing called a letter. And they would put something on it called a stamp. And they would put it in the mail. But then this sound came into our lives. How many remember this? Yeah, dial up, baby. And you're on the internet. 
And then mom gets on the phone and it knocks you off the internet. Come on! All of us have lived through certain kinds of changes. But in a changing world, I'm so glad we have an unchanging God. See, God is always good and he's always great. God is always all loving and he is always all powerful. He is always holy. His plans are always greater than our plans. His thoughts are always greater than our thoughts. His ways are always greater than our ways. God is an unchanging God in a changing world. And I'm so glad that he's given us an anchor to hold on to where he said, I do not change. With okay, now, since he's making a lot of hay about that, let's apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. And they are context, context, and context. Notice he started at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Verse 6. Uh-huh. And it begins with, For I, the Lord, do not change. Why would God have to say, For I, the Lord, do not change? It starts with the preposition, For. Why is it doing that? Well, there's a very good reason for that is because there's a thought that God is trying to complete here. And I would recommend you actually take the 10 minutes that it would take to read the entire book of Malachi. I'm not going to read it in its entirety here today, but you can see what's going on here. In in Malachi, for instance, Malachi chapter 2, God is quarreling with, if you would, the priests, the Levites of Israel. And um, and the reason why he's upset with them and rebuking them is because the Levites, rather than demand that the people of Israel give, you know, sacrifice healthy animals, which the Mosaic Covenant requires, the Levites are allowing Uh, the children of Israel, to sacrifice animals who've been torn apart by wild animals, Uh, animals who are sickly, who are diseased and ugly, okay? Rather than the best from the flock, the the people of Israel are bringing the animals which already have, you know, two hooves in in the grave already, and this is what they're sacrificing at the temple. And God is not happy with this. He's not happy with the priests at all because the job of the priests is to confront the, the, the people of Israel who would do such a thing. And rather than do that, the priests are basically going, yeah, this is no fine. That's no problem. God's okay with that. Okay. And so, um, you know, I'll start at Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, so you can kind of get, you know, the gist of this. We're going to kind of jump into the middle of this rebuke that God is rebuking the priests for. And he's not, he's not, sparing his rebuke for just the priests because the children of Israel have broken faith and are being disobedient as well. Um, but he, he starts off by rebuking the priests for allowing this to happen rather than doing their job. And he says, "Oh, and now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. Which curse, by the way? The curses found in the Mosaic covenant. Okay. They're in Leviticus. They're in Deuteronomy. Pull out the PDF that I put up with today's episode or click on the link and, and, and read. You'll see for yourself. Okay. This isn't some generic threat out there. This is the fine print of the Mosaic covenant, which is a contract between God and the people of Israel because they are tenants in, you know, and stewards of God's 
property, God's land, the, the promised land. They are, and so as part of their tenant agreement, if you would, in the land of Israel, if, if they obey God, they get blessings. If they disobey God, there are very specific curses. So this is what he's talking about here. He says, if you will not give honor to my name, I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offsprings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi might stand, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice, Malachi chapter 2, verse 4, makes it very clear which covenant is in play here, you know, in the book of Malachi. The covenant I made with Levi. Right. We're dealing with the Levitical covenant. Okay. My covenant with him was one, one of life and peace, and I gave them... And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear that he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from iniquity. Notice here God is reminding them that the true Levites, part of their job is to turn people from their sin and iniquity. But they're not doing that. They're, they're basically saying, oh, you're good with God. You know, that animal looks like it's about to die. Quick, let's sacrifice it before it stops breathing, right? For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many people to stumble by your instruction. You can say by your false instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god." May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with the portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Yeah, that's right. So next thing, it's not just that they're bringing diseased animals to be offered. Oh, the Lord has words with them now because they're not honoring marriage. And uh, men are divorcing their wives and despising the wives of their youth. This should never be, the Lord of hosts says. So he has words with them about that. And, you know, it, verse 17 continues, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, well, how have we wearied him? Well, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. 
and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So, you know, what? there's all kinds of false teaching going on. Men are not being turned from their sinfulness, turned from their iniquity, not brought to repentance. They're bringing diseased animals and despising the wife of their youth. I mean, there's a lot of evil going on in Israel at this time. So now we're to chapter 3, verse 1. So behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is a prophecy regarding John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them with gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offspring, offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days." Okay, so there's a prophecy right in the middle of this regarding John the Baptist who will prepare the way of the Lord. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. So verse 5 is all about saying God's going to judge. He's going to judge adulterers, sorcerers, those who are liars and swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker and the poor and the fatherless. Yeah, so the, okay, so now we got some more judgment. Verse 6, now we're finally to it. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return. You can even say repent. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? In, in your tithes and contributions, or tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing, robbing me, the whole nation of you. So this is a, this is just one of their sins, and this is specifically referring to you are cursed with a curse. What curse? The curses of the Levitical covenant, the curses of the Mosaic covenant, you know, that are expressly laid out in Leviticus as well as Deuteronomy. This isn't some generic curse. This is the curses of the covenant. And he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now keep this in mind. The Mosaic covenant says, do this and you shall live. The new covenant says Christ has done this, therefore you shall live. You see, the Mosaic covenant puts it all backwards. Okay, because it was never meant to save anybody or make us righteous before God. The main purpose of the Mosaic Covenant is to expose our sin and show us our sinfulness. That's what Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says. So, we as Christians, we do not give to receive a blessing. We give because we are already 
blessed. That's Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Again, I referenced all this in hour number one. So you now know what's going on in this text. You've seen it for yourself. You know the context of what's going on here. You know that we're referring, this is all a rebuke of the tenants, the stewards uh, in God's land who are not keeping his covenant, and God's invoking the curses that go along with that contract, with that covenant, and uh, threatening them they've got to keep up their end of the obligation. This is how the law works, by the way. But we Christians are not under the Mosaic Covenant. We are not obligated to the tithe. And what Perry Noble is about to do here is literally, literally an abomination that puts people back under the Mosaic Covenant and puts them under a curse. But we'll get to that in just a minute. Let's continue to see now what Perry Noble does with this chapter. That, though, comes the fact that God, when he does not change, also means he does not change his mind. Very important. Keep in mind. All right, let's keep reading. This is fun. Okay. He said, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Then he says this, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? It's a great question. God says, I want you to come back to me. And if you come back to me, I'll come back to you. And they ask the question, well, what do you want us to do, God? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? He says, and he, it's interesting. He said, will a mere mortal rob God? It's pretty it's a pretty offensive, direct question. Yet you rob me. Now, how many pe- people here have legitimately been robbed? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Columbia campus is a lot higher, all right? It's... <laughs> but you ask, how are we robbing you? Now, watch this. In tithes and offerings. He didn't say just tithes. He said tithes and Offerings, tithe would be like 10%. Offerings would be something like um, step up or something you know, beyond the tithe. Now watch this, watch this. He said, you're under a curse. Your whole nation because you are robbing me. Now, I started looking at this word curse this week. That's pretty legit when, when somebody tells you you're under a curse. And I started thinking about curses. I started thinking about curses. I started thinking about um, in the noble house, plants are cursed. I can kill anything. Hey, you want to kill marijuana distribution in America? Appoint me as secretary of agriculture. Marijuana plants in the, they will die. I can't, I I remember one time somebody gave Lucretia a plant and they said, this is a plant you can't kill. We killed it. It's everything, everything, every plant is cursed. When something is cursed, it means it cannot grow. And God said, God told these people, he said, you're under a curse because you're robbing me when it comes to tithes and offerings. Now, here's what, here's what I just want you to consider today. When it comes to your finances, they're either blessed by God or cursed by God. Okay, that's patently false. No, it is not true that when it comes to your finances, they're either blessed by God or cursed by God. That's an absolute ignoring of what's going on in this passage. This passage is invoking the curses of the Levitical law of the Mosaic covenant. And so it's not saying some general principle that applies out there in the universe that you're, you know, you're, you're, what you have is either blessed by God or cursed by God regard. And it all hinges on whether or not you've tithed. That's patently 
false and shows the Perry Noble does not know how to rightly handle God's word and distinguish between law and gospel and the old covenant and the new. There is no middle ground. They're either blessed by God or cursed by God, and there is no middle ground. Now, let me tell you where this hit me. Let me tell you where it hit me and came flooding in. It came in like a wrecking ball. Okay, sorry. Miley Cyrus, her, her, her dad set her up for failure. I mean, come on, that's the achy, breaky, bad, mistakey, and everybody loved it. And if you don't know what that is, probably better for it. I was in Israel with my friend Arie, and, um, and for those of you that are going to get to go to Israel, the, the place I'm about to describe, you're going to get to see it um, in March, and many of you on the fuse trip. Okay, I need to make a note about what you're going to hear. Just because what he's going to point to is in the land of Israel, does not mean that this is somehow based upon a biblical principle that applies today. Keep that in mind. If, and by the way, you know, just because the Jordan River is there in Israel today, if somebody sells you Jordan River water, it isn't any holier than any other water anywhere on the planet. Trip, you're going to get to see it in June. Um, but I'm standing at a place called Caiaphas's house. And Caiaphas was one of the, Caiaphas' house was one of the places they took Jesus the, the, day, the night before um, they crucified him. So they took him there and they kind of put him on a mock trial. And um, anyway, it's very interesting. So from Caiaphas' house, you can stand. And if you can imagine this, like straight ahead is the, kind of over to the left is the Mount of Olives. And, and down here, you can see the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and over here is kind of Bethlehem. And there's development and there's real estate and there's buildings and there's all kinds of stuff. But then there's one piece of land kind of off and to the right. And, and in fact, I snapped a picture. Of, this is a picture from my, um, my iPhone. This piece of land right here. This piece of land right here. And um, there's development all around it. You can see the developments. You can see the buildings. And you can see And it's all over here. And it's all over here, too. Like, there's development everywhere except for that piece of land. So I was really confused by this. And I asked my friend Arie. I said, Arie, what is that piece of land right there? I mean, it seems, is it too expensive or does nobody want to buy it? I mean, what is that piece of land? And Arie looked at me and he kind of smiled and he said, that is the piece of land that was bought with the money given to Judas when he betrayed Jesus. He said, it's cursed land. Christians will not build on it. Jews will not build on it. Muslims will not build on it because it's cursed. I started thinking about this. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He got the money to betray Jesus from who? The high priest. Where did the high priest get the money? The temple treasury. How did money get in the temple treasury? The tithe. Technically, Judas betrayed Jesus for tithe money. And for people that believe that the tithe is an Old Testament concept that's done away with in the New Testament, first of all, God never lowered the standard in the New Testament. He always raised it. Uh, again, um, you do not know your covenants. Um, and number two, you are twisting God's word. The Bible, by the way, the, go- uh, the gospel of Matthew, actually explains to us what the problem is. Was the problem with the money uh, of Judas that it was tithe money? 
No. Because keep this in mind. Let's just say that, okay, we're still all under the tithe or whatever, um, but um, th- th- this doesn't prove anything. Just because no one wants to, to develop the land that was purchased with the money that was used to betray Jesus doesn't show us anything regarding the, quote, curse. And here's the reason why. Because the people were cursed under the Mosaic curses that are laid out in the Mosaic Covenant for not tithing. So once their tithe was in the storehouse, right, um, it's that money is no longer under a curse. Okay. Okay. So that being the case, it doesn't apply. Okay. But the gospel of Matthew makes it very clear what the problem here is. Okay. What was the money used for? Not what its origin was. What was the money used for? The money was used to betray an innocent man. The only sinless, innocent man to ever walk the earth. Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 says this, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Okay, he didn't say, oh, I've sinned because I've taken tithe money. No, it says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So they said, well, what is this to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hung himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Huh? So they took counsel and bought with and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. If there's a curse associated with the field of blood, the curse has to do with the fact that not that it was bought with tithe money, but that it was bought with blood money, blood money, money that was used to betray innocent blood. And so, of course, Perry Noble is not interested in the details here because he's not interested in rightly handling God's word. He's trying to raise funds. This is a money-raising uh, technique that he's employing using Robert Morris's false teaching on this from the book The Blessed Life. And he thinks he has objective proof. I snapped this photo with my iPhone in Israel. And see, that land is still cursed to this day because it was tithe money. no. Matthew chapter 27 says it was blood money, money used to betray innocent blood. Perry Noble is not teaching God's word correctly here at all. Second of all, this is a picture 2,000 years of proof that when we betray Jesus for money, the ground, what we have is cursed. And I'm not telling you that God wants your blessing. I'm, I'm not telling you that God wants your money. I'm telling you today that you need God's blessing. Yes, well, you need God's blessing. Well, you don't want you, you don't want to be cursed like the ground that was used to buy the potter's field or the potter's field itself. Well, yeah, it was cursed because it was you know purchased with tithe money. Oh, I just, you see this? Whoa, the curse is going to come and get you if you. And all I want is for you to be blessed. 
Notice the blessing hinges on your obedience. It hinges on your keeping of the law. Yet Galatians makes it clear that everybody who is under the law, it says, here's what it says, Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Plain and simple. You want to be under the tithe? Well, then you're also under the obligation to be circumcised. You want to, you want to tithe and expect to get, earn God's blessing by your obedience to the Mosaic Covenant? You're bound to all 613 commandments in the Mosaic Covenant now. It's, the curse here is the curse that Perry Noble is putting everybody under who's listening to him and think that they're hearing God's word rightly taught when they're not. Feel that? It's fun. Hey, I'm not trying to get anything from you. We'll see that in just a little bit. Let's go to verse 10. I love this. He said, bring the whole tithe. Notice he didn't say give. He said, bring. Like, for example, if I let you borrow my iPad mini, I've got an iPad mini. I love it. It's, it's, it's the coolest thing in the world. If I let you borrow it and you brought it back to me three days later, you knocked on my door and said, I'm giving you a brand new iPad mini. I'm a crack smoker. You're not giving me a brand new. You're, you're bringing back to me what I gave to you in the first place. So bring The whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, I want to show you something. Everybody take out your dime bag. Yeah, you heard that right. He actually, the New Spring Church gave everybody who showed up to New Spring last, this past Sunday, dime bags. That's right. Dime bags. And in those dime bags were two things, a single dollar bill and a dime. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what was inside each of the dime bags. So everybody at New Spring this past Sunday received from New Spring dime bags. Dime bag at New Spring. Hashtag dime bag. Hashtag church. Hashtag woohoo. Hashtag Doritos. All right. So hey, we're keeping it real. Now. Everybody take your dollar and your dime. Everybody do this. Everybody do this. You can play along. Everybody take your dollar and your dime. Everybody take your dollar and your dime. Dollar and a dime. Dollar and a dime. Dollar and a dime. Got them? Everybody got them? All right. This is going to be fun. This is what tithing is. Everybody hold up your dollar. For every one of these, you give God one of these. That's how easy it is. You get that? Every one of these, you've got one of these. If you get 10 of these, you've got 10 of these. If you get 100 of these, you've got 100 of these. See, where we, where we have a problem with tithing is when we think that these are the result of our hard work and not the blessing of God. Because if we see this as the blessing of God, we don't view it as I have to give God this. It's mean it, We view it as, you mean I get to keep the other nine here? Everything that we have in our life is a gift from God. Statistically, the more of these you make, the less of these you'll give. It's true, statistically. So for people that go, wait a minute, I'll make way too much of these to ever give God 10. I'll pray for God to reduce your income. So you can understand that he truly is the source of everything good in our life. None of us would have any of these. Some of us go, I'm a smart person. I'm a genius. I figured it out. Listen, my friend, you were born on third base. You didn't hit a triple. God gave you the brains that you have in order to figure out some of the things that you figured out. Everything we have is a gift 
from God. So for every one of these, he just goes, I want one of these. Notice this. He said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That's the local church. Some people disagree with that. That's fine. You can be wrong. No, it's not. The storehouse is not the local church. That's patently false. Absolutely false. The storehouse was a very specific place in Jerusalem where the temple was that people were to bring in their corn, their crops, their livestock, their everything that goes along with the tithe, okay, which was a tax, okay, big difference. So everybody who says, oh, well, the church, you know, the storehouse is the church, that's patently false again, too. Hey, what's going to be around in 2,000 years if Jesus don't come back? Not universities, not hospitals. I think they're great causes. I think we should give to them. The local church is still going to be here, and it's still going to be making a difference. And I'm glad we've got people at New Spring that tithe. I'm not preaching this message because we need any money, because we've got people that tithe in this church, and they tithe regularly, and they tithe faithfully. And you know what You know what that means? When we showed up today at church, there's food in the house. There's food in Kids Spring right now as kids are learning about Jesus on their level. There will be, be food. In- yeah, it's too bad the adults are not learning about Jesus the house on Wednesday night when teenagers from all over the state gathered together to worship Jesus. And we've been told this generation doesn't come to church anymore, but they do come to church. There'll be food in the house this week when people show up and they have problems. There's food in the house where marriages are falling apart and they come to church and they find hope and restoration. There is food in this house because people in this house are honoring God. And, and, and for every one of these, they give him one of these. Now watch this, watch this. He said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. God said, come on, come on, Cletus. <laughs> he didn't say that. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, by the way, let me, let me go back. That's the key right there, Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty, Lord Almighty. Here, I got financial problems. Lord Almighty, he's bigger than your financial problems. He's bigger, he's bigger, he's bigger, all right? He said, he said this, he said, And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Love that. He said, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. There that. Yeah, because according to the curses of the Mosaic covenant, that's exactly what would happen if they disobeyed God's commands. That is again, then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So with this in mind, I want to ask, I told you I was going to get to it. Three questions, three questions. Here we go. Question number one. Now, let me, let me, before I get there, let me say this. Some of you are like, I hate it when he does that. These questions are going to sting. If you're not a Christian, once again, I give you complete permission Just not even believe this. These are three questions that I think we need to wrestle with if we're going to be fully devoted followers to Christ. Here's the first question. Why would I trust God with all of my sin but none of my money? Why would I trust God with all of my sin but none of my money? Now, keep in mind, you're going to to hear some gospel elements but he's not preaching the gospel, so he doesn't get the gospel nugget here, okay? Again, this is the naggy gospel thing that goes like, you know, like I 
said before. You know, this is what your mother says when she says, you know, I carried you in my womb for nine months and you won't even clean your room. <laughs> Reminding you of all the good things she's done for you. But then, you know, guilting you because you're not responding, you know, you know, in a way that makes your mom happy. This is this that's this kind of preaching of the gospel. You're not going to hear the gospel actually preached. You're going to hear the gospel referenced, but not preached. See, here's the good news here today on whatever campus. There is no sin in this room that cannot be covered by the cross of Christ. I don't um, Actually, if you were preaching the gospel correctly, it's that hasn't already been covered by the gospel of Christ. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, not someday it'll be done. I don't care about the addiction or the abortion or the affair or anything that you've ever wrestled with in your life. There is no sin that cannot be covered by the cross of Christ. On the flip side, there is no sin in this room that does not need to be covered by the cross of Christ. All of us at the cross, the ground is level. And when we come to Jesus, when we give our life to Jesus, we're telling him, I surrender everything. Actually, that's backwards. No, the scripture does not say when we surrender our lives to Jesus or give our lives to Jesus. The good news is that Christ gave his life for us. He surrendered his life for us. The emphasis is on the completely wrong syllable here, the way you're preaching this. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross, that you paid the price for my sin. Only through Jesus are we made right with God. And we say, Jesus, I give you all of my sin. Now, at that moment, there's a biblical term called justification that takes place where we are literally justified before God. He takes all of our wrong and he gives us all of his right through him. Now, notice the scriptures say we're justified by grace through faith. We're not justified by giving our lives to Jesus. He's not preaching the gospel correctly here at all. He makes it sound like we're justified by our surrender. That is not good. His son, Jesus, and we are made clean and made brand new, and he takes all of our sin. But here's the deal. I've already stated that the Bible says way more about money than it does about heaven or hell. So why would we trust God with all of our sin, but none of our money? Let me say this. You don't have to give God a dime from here on out for him to love you. God loves you, and it's not based on your giving. It's not based on your serving. It's not based on your Bible reading. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This isn't about getting God to love us. This is about saying, God, I love you. And God made the ground level. He said the way to tangibly... Now, this is going to get really slippery. The details matter. Stay tuned. Stick with it. You'll see where the problem comes in. Say that I'm first in your finances, it's for every one of these. Give me one of these. That's the tangible way that God said we worship. So when it, come to, when it came to paying for our sin, God sent his very best, right? He didn't send some under-challenged angel playing ping pong in the back corner of heaven and say, I need you to go and pay for the sin of the world. He sent Jesus. He sent his best. He sent the very best he had. Think about this for a second. Girls, let me just ask single girls. Oh, let me ask you a question. Let's say a dude asked you out on a date and he asked you out. He didn't text you. He didn't Facebook you. He didn't tweet you. He didn't Instagram a selfie and say, want to go out with this guy? He didn't do any of that. Um, it's pathetic losers, what that is, all right? And I'm strong on that stance. Um, and so, well, that's the way my husband asked me out. Well, God can use 
anything bad and turn it into good, all right? I'm just, be a man. So he comes up, he asks you out on a date, and you agree, and you think, oh, this guy's sweet, I want to go out with him. And so he comes and picks you up in his car, and you get in his car, and there's QT cups everywhere. Nothing wrong with QT, but like there's, Q, there's QT, and you're like half-eaten candy bar on the, on the console, right? And, and you're like, I don't know about this. And he pulls up into his yard, and he kind of pull, he's like, I'm taking you to my house. And you're like, oh, this is going to be sweet. He's got a romantic candlelight dinner. And you go inside in the house, um, and then there's just like dirty towels all, everywhere, and like there, and there's just this clothes and he puts you at the table and he, he, he puts down a used paper plate. Okay. Yeah. And he's like, I'm trying to save some money. Um, so he puts down this used paper plate and he gets and, and into the refrigerator. And he's like, Oh, I found this for you. And he pulls out a sandwich and it's half a sandwich and it's so old. It has a beard on it. Right. And so he puts down the sandwich with a beard and he says, um, you're special to me. There's not a girl in the room that would go, Oh, I love him. You would say hashtag loser, hashtag get rid of him, hashtag uh-uh. Like that, that's, we would all agree that that is not the way to say God, to say I'm giving you my best. Giving God our best is simply every one of these gets one of these. That's the best. He said that's the way to do it first and that's the way to do it best. And listen. How in the world, and we, I ask this question all the time, how in the world can we stand in the shadow of a bloodstained cross and complain about this when God gave us this to begin with? Notice the cross now is the impetus for guilting you into demanding that you give a dime for every dollar you earn to New Spring. All right. Question number two. This will be even better. This will release the tension. Do I really believe what God says about money and giving? It's a great question. I think we need to examine that. In fact, in, in order to help me out with this, I'm going to ask my daughter, Karis, to come out on the stage and help me with this illustration. Karis, will you come out here for a second, baby? This is my little girl, Karis. She's six years old. I get a hug. How are you doing? All right, you doing good? All right. Now, what did you get before you came out here, Karis? What did you get? A dime. A dime. Can you hold it up and show it to everybody? Can you hold the dime up? Everybody see the dime? Okay, now, I want to, I want to illustrate what God says about giving. Karis, I want you to put that dime in your hand. I want you to hold it real tight. You got it? I want you to hold it real tight. Now, when we hold on to what God said to give to him, when God tries to bless us, when God tries to bless our lives, he can't get it in our hand because we're holding on to it. You see that? And no matter how much I pour out on her, it's going to go somewhere else because she... This illustration doesn't actually tell us anything about what Scripture says, and it's not found in Scripture, nor does the Bible say this. She won't let go of the dime. You're doing so good. Now, Karis, I want you to hold the dime like this, and I want you, I want you to trust me, and I want you to give it. I want you to give it because if you give it, I'll feel it. Now give it and I'll feel it. Now give it and I'll feel it. Now give it and I'll feel it. So you give to get, you give to be blessed. First, second Corinthians eight and nine makes it clear that we are blessed. Therefore we are able to give completely backwards. This is taking us back to the Mosaic covenant, putting us back under the Mosaic law and making us, putting us in bondage to uh, the law, putting us back under the guardian. We are, as Christians, are not under the Mosaic Covenant. Now give it, and I'll fill it. Now give it, and I'll fill it. Now give it, and I'll fill it. See, here's the deal. She, 
She doesn't have the potential to receive like I have the potential to give. She can't even handle it. And Karis, what's the one lesson that we learned from this? You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. Thank you so much, baby. You did a great job, all right? You're good. You're good. Now, some people go, Perry, that's, that's really close to the health and wealth gospel. Well, yeah, in fact, it, close doesn't even correctly put it. That is the health and wealth gospel. Well, there's either health and wealth gospel or sick and broke gospel. Which one, which, which, and I'm not saying that God will always bless you with, with money. So make it, just make a note. Perry Noble has publicly allied himself with the prosperity gospel, at least a form of it. He knows it. He's acknowledged it, and he's not apologetic for it. Okay, this should tell you something. Run. Where did he learn this this teaching from? From Robert Morris, who is a prosperity preacher who does teach the word of faith heresy in his book, The Blessed Life. Perry Nobles bought it hook, line, and sinker, and now this becomes the primary means by which he extorts money from the people at New Spring. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, he actually is putting them under a curse. Let me read again Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now let me back the audio up and not interrupt Perry Noble where he publicly aligns himself with the prosperity gospel. Thank you so much, baby. You did a great job, all right? You're good. You're good. Now, some people go, Perry, that's, that's really close to the health and wealth gospel. Well, there's either health and wealth gospel or sick and broke gospel. Which one, which, which, and I'm not saying that God will always bless you with, with money. I'm not saying that it's always going to be money. It might be health. It might be favorite work. It might be um, some others. It's not always money. Listen, it's not limited to, but can include money. It's not limited to, but can include money. Uh, keep in mind, Scripture again, Second Corinthians 8 and 9, makes it clear God blesses us to give, not blesses us for giving. Get it? God said, I will bless you. But you know what? You got to let this go. You got to let this go. And you got to do it consistently. Remember? Information plus consistent application equals transformation. Which leads to the third question. The third question is this. What needs to change in the way I handle my finances? Some of y'all are going, can I come up there and clean up the stage after you get done? What needs to change in the way I handle my finances? Now, everybody with your dime bag still out, there's a little card in there. Okay? There's two things I want to draw your attention to on this particular card. Okay. Today at New Spring, some of you on every campus need to get this right. This is an area of your life that's been a flat tire. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique used by a lot of um, megachurch pastors to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending upon the auditorium, ready to do business with people as they make commitments to obey. For years. Today's the day you need to make it right. And so what um, 
what you can do is we're not going to take another offering. We're not going to take, uh, this is where you expect the megachurch to take another offering. And I mean, this is like a big drive-by guilting and we just guilted everybody. And no, 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 you can go home and you figure this out. You just cursed everybody and put them back under the Mosaic Covenant. But if you want to get this right today, you don't need to wait till next Sunday. You can get it right today. Newspring.cc slash give is on your card. And I'm not going to ask you to sign a commitment today. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to, you know, whatever. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do today at every one of our campuses. You got a dollar. You got a dime. And if you're going to commit to put Jesus first in your finances, as you leave in the pin bucket, I simply don't want you to just drop your dime in. We don't have a radio tracking device on your dollar. We don't have anything like that. We tried to get it. It wouldn't work. But but we... Now, some of you, you're going to be really holy going, I'm putting my dollar in too. Hold it. Calm down, Captain Pharisee. I'm not asking you. I want you to keep your dollar. I want you to take your dollar. I want you to put it beside your computer. I want you to put it in your car. I want you to put it somewhere where you can see it. Listen, just as a reminder of how much God has blessed you. But I want you, if you're going to make this commitment, if you're going to make this commitment today, I just want you to take your dime on your way out in the bucket and drop it in. Now, listen, if you're not going to make the commitment, keep the dime. It's okay. Nobody's going to judge you. All right? But if you're going to make this commitment today, I want you to drop the dime. Second thing is I always say this at our church, but I want to say this. I want to drill down this. We don't, need, we don't want anything from you. So if you think that we're after your tithe money, I want to give you permission to tithe to another church today. Just go home and find another church online. As you're driving home, look at a church and say, I'm going to send my money to that church. That's fine. I don't care. Just give it a shot. But there are some people in here that you're really upside down financially. You're in, you're in debt. Um, you, you feel like you have no hope. Credit cards are dominating your life. You're upside down financially. Clearly, you're under the curse. Uh, and normally, this is the point in the message where I would tell you we have a class that you can come to this week. But we know that classes are always such a challenge because you got to find child care. you got to get off of work early. And it's a struggle to get to our campuses. So you know what we've done? For the next week, in fact, next Monday, not, this, not tomorrow, but next Monday. So through next Monday, there's a website, and it's on this side of your card, newspring.cc slash changemyfinances. And on this website, there are eight on-demand video lessons available. And listen, these are taught by Joe Sangle, a really good friend of mine and a um, really good friend of New Springs. And I will guarantee you that if you'll sit down this week and go through these videos, some of you, especially high school and college students, let me tell you, this is some of the greatest discipleship stuff you will ever learn in your life. And I'm telling you this right here, listen. You don't have to register. You don't have to pay a fee. You don't have to sign. Listen, this is completely free. And we did this this week, not because we want something from you, but because we want something for you. Yeah, we want you to be blessed, but see, you're cursed. So you got to tithe and then God will bless you. So give this a shot. This right here will literally help you. And then if we can serve you in any way, if we can serve you in any way in our church in this capacity, shoot us an email. We have free financial coaching. We want to help you get this right. Because especially, listen to me, high school and college students, when you're 25, 30 years old and God calls you to do something, you won't have to say, wait till I get out of debt. You can just do it right then. Scripture says, for those that still wrestle with this, I understand. But look at money through this lens. For from him... And through him and for him are all things. 
To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to close with a really quick story. Um, And this is mainly for people that are still skeptical of me being after your money. Uh, I understand. Let me set it up like this. Most people in this room probably do not remember where you were in January of 1990. Many of you probably weren't even on the planet. How many weren't born in January of 1990? Oh, dear Lord. All right. I remember where I was very well. My dad had been arrested for um, possession with intention to distribute drugs about 18 months earlier. And um, for the next 18 months, me and my father lost everything we had. Everything I had of value was in a pawn shop somewhere in Easley, South Carolina. And the reason I remember January 1990 is because it was cold and I didn't have a jacket. And when I say I didn't have a jacket, I'm not saying I didn't have a jacket that matched certain outfits. I'm saying I didn't have a jacket. I did not own a jacket. And uh, I had a sweatshirt and I wore it everywhere. And in January 1990, my father and I, we went, we scraped up some money and we bought this jacket. It's, I mean, it smells and the zipper's broke and it's coming apart. But I've kept this jacket in my closet for over two decades now. This is where I come from. I come from a broke homeless background. And you know what? If you took everything away from me, and I was left in the middle of a road with my wife and my little girl in this jacket, I would still say Jesus is Lord. And I would still say God is good. And I would still tell you that I've been blessed more than I ever thought I would ever be. It's not about what I have. It's about what Jesus is doing in your heart. I've kept this jacket as a reminder that in 1990, I met Jesus and he changed my life. In 1999, I surrendered my finances to him. And hey, I don't say this bragging. I'm just saying it very honestly. Today, if I want a jacket, I can buy it. See, he can buy a jacket now because he surrendered his finances. I'm not broke and I'm not upside down. It has nothing to do with how much money that came in. It had everything to do with how I was handling what God had given me and told me to do in the first place. So, Kuhn, in fact, today, I just want you to remain seated and let's, let's pray. Okay, he doesn't get to pray for us. God's word will have the last word. O foolish new springers, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so because of works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
for all who rely on works of the law under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Yeah. Now it is evident that no one is declared righteous before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Yeah, there's a curse involved in the preaching that uh, Perry Noble gave us. And that's this. Because we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, and what Perry Noble is doing is effectively putting the people in New Spring back under the Mosaic Covenant, he, ironically, in a desire to only see that they are receiving God's blessing, because Perry Noble doesn't know how to rightly handle God's Word and distinguish between law and gospel, has in fact put all of them under the curse of the Mosaic Law. And now... They are bound not only to keep the law of tithing, but all 613 commandments in the Mosaic Covenant, because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law continually. Think about it. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. I'm in there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.